Hello and welcome to this, the first of three podcasts from Faber this autumn, focusing on major new history titles. My guests in future programmes will be Helen Castor, whose book on Joan of Arc is published in October, and in November, Jenny Uglow, who's turned her attention to the home front during the Napoleonic Wars in her latest book, In These Times. But I'm delighted to say that my guest in this first history podcast of the season is the young medieval historian Dan Jones. Dan's first book, The Summer of Blood, appeared in 2009. It re-examined the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and in the words of the Times, livened up the Middle Ages. That's what Dan has continued to do ever since. He followed the Summer of Blood three years later, with the equally well-received The Plantagenets, a story which he now completes with his new book for Faber published this month, The Hollow Crown. Here he charts the turbulent downfall of the Plantagenet dynasty and the rise of the Tudors, a story that is, as he says himself, big, bloody and thrilling. Not for nothing does George R. R. Martin cite the Wars of the Roses as one of his inspirations for the Game of Thrones. The Times has called the Hollow Crown both edifying and utterly entertaining. His delightful wit is as ferocious as the dreadful violence he describes. The Sunday Times called the book racy and vigorous. And the Evening Standard said, Jones is a born storyteller, peopling the terrifying uncertainties of each moment with a superbly drawn cast of characters and powerfully evoking the brutal realities of civil war. Jones himself makes clear right at the start of the book that he wants to convey the nature of dynastic conflict as it was actually experienced in the 15th century, not as later filtered through Tudor propaganda, Shakespearean drama or the works of Victorian historians. His is a history read in tooth and claw. When we met, I was curious to know how Dan came to write about this period, so I began by asking him, about his own early encounters with history at school. I think when I was a teenager studying history, I was one of those teenagers you read about in the papers who only seemed to study Tudors and Nazis and Tudors and Nazis in sort of endless rotation. But at the time that didn't seem so bad because I had a really, really good teacher, particularly for the Tudor history that we were learning. Uh, he was a very creative sort of teacher, so as, as well as the sort of rote learning essays about Tudor politics, Tudor court, religion and all that. We were also, he would make these sort of fantastic kind of card games based on people at the Tudor court, which is a bit like sort of top trumps. He would make these songs up about, and I know that sounds corny, but it actually made it stick in your head. And he was a really fantastic teacher. And I assumed that this man must love the Tudors more than, than life itself. And it turned out, sort of years after I left school, he didn't really like the Tudors at all. In fact, he found them really boring. And all he wanted to teach were the Stuarts. And he was completely obsessed with the Civil War. But of course, the, the syllabus at that time didn't allow him to, um, to teach it. So I was really fascinated, really fascinated by, um, by the whole historical process, as well as by the, sub, the, you know, the, the sort of narrow subjects that we were we were studying. And was it already clear to you that you wanted to go on and study history at university? No, it wasn't clear at all, really. I was just seemed to be sort of best at history. You know, if I had to rank what my subjects, it was like, all oh, right, history's probably the best. And so I applied to Cambridge and uh, got in to read history, but uh, then had no idea really what what else to do because it had been Tudors, Nazis, Tudors, Nazis. I remember I said to, I said to my teacher, I said, what? They've sent me a letter saying, 
I can pick to read whatever bit of history I want and, and I don't know what to do. And he said, oh, me neither. Well, I don't know. Try medieval. That would probably be all right. <laughs> it was just a guess. Uh, but I went up to Cambridge and then ended up studying with Helen Castor and with Christine Carpenter and with this brilliant school of Cambridge medievalists. Uh, and the work that I did in those three years, about 15 years ago now, is still what I've been drawing on writing um, Hollow Crown and writing Plantagenets before it, this, this kind of a, uh, this approach to medieval history. And that just I loved it from the first, the first day. The first, I, remember, I can remember sitting in Helen Gaster's study talking about King John and Magna Carta, and I loved it from the first moment. It was just this whole world opening up that I'd never, never been to before. So, so what was it that really sort of sparked your imagination? I think because what you've got in the Middle Ages is that perfect balance which you find when you're studying history between the familiar and the alien in the sense that this world is extremely weird. It's almost like you're going to another planet because the, the rules are different, the, the sort of cultural mindset is different, the, the attitudes towards violence, towards religion, towards... Um, life cycle towards women, towards other countries. Everything is, is in some sense, is different. And yet, it's just familiar enough to be able to get in there, to be able to, to feel some sort of historical connection with the people in the way that you can, you, know, you can write about them and bring these stories alive. And also because the, the high Middle Ages, quote-unquote, you know, that, that sort of period from, let's say, Normans through to, um, through to Tudors, divvied up dynastically, is full of these stories that have great like brand recognition, if you like. Magna Carta, Peasant's Revolt, Hundred Years' War, Wars of the Roses, Black Death, you know, you name it. It's all there. And like these were names that I knew and I think a lot of people will be familiar with, but no depth of knowledge, really. If you went out on the street and asked people, tell me something about Magna Carta, uh, they might think it was the Jay-Z album or whatever. I think you probably give that response more than any substantial detail. So... What's great about writing about the Middle Ages is that you're, you're getting to open up stories that people are maybe familiar with the names, but with, with not with the content. And sometimes the stories turn out to be either false or heavily reworked for, for later purposes, mm. propaganda purposes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of, uh, there's a huge body of myth that's grown up about um, lots of parts of the Middle Ages over over time, and I suppose that, that that's true of lots of historical periods, but it's particularly true of, of uh, England, of Britain in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, when you start writing about this time, you are, you know, you're unpeeling the sort of layers of the onion, of, of the mythology and of the, um, the, in some cases, propaganda that's grown up around events over over the years and as subsequent generations have told their stories. And, and it's really... It's it's that um, core kind of historical journey to go inside and start peeling away what's not true, what are the biases, what are the sort of nonsense, and then start reconstructing the story. So going back to you again for a moment, you decided not to pursue a, um, an academic career. Why was that? Couldn't afford it. That's the, the, the main reason. I wanted to go and start doing a PhD back at Cambridge, and I just couldn't get I couldn't get funding. It was a hard funding year, and. Um, I was pretty down in the dumps, to be honest with you, because I was, um, I really enjoyed it. But that was that, you know, there was, it was going to cost far too much money. And I was, I was, I remember I was tutoring at the time, doing private tuition, you know. 
and the mother of one of um, one of the children I was tutoring had just finished her first history book, and she said, "Well, okay, if you can't go and do the PhD, you can't go and do the PhD, but but you can. It is possible to continue studying and to and to produce historical work. And guess what? The the publishers pay you in advance to do it, and this seemed like such a sort of wonderful revelation." So that's how I started, and I started writing about London. In I wanted to study London in the 1370s if I was going to start doing a PhD, uh, and that's how I started writing. Came to write a book about the Peasants' Revolt, and then everything sort of then, then the Plantagenets, and now now Hollow Crown. After that, it's been a sort of logical uh, journey. It feels logical to me anyway. Logical did, did, did you have a sort of master plan when you when you set out in on the 1370s, or did it sort of develop as you went along? Not really. I mean, I had this idea that after after writing about the Peasants' Revolt, I might write about Richard II. Uh, but when it came to writing about Richard II, I found or I felt that to to understand what went so disastrously wrong in 1399 with Richard being deposed, you know, and and sort of that that whole. Plantagenet, long, you know, 250 years of Plantagenet history crashing down. It, it was almost like you had to rewind right back from, to the start to explain that, particularly in a sort of uh, popular-facing kind of narrative history. Uh, and I found that the introduction to this book was going to be about 150,000 words long and realised that, hang on, what I really want to write here is probably a dynastic history of the whole Plantagenet era. And so that's that's how the Plantagenet's book really came about. And as it turned out, no one had really done that for, for quite a long time. Some good reasons, because it's quite hard to do. Um, but once once I'd done that, then the, the logical next step was to finish the story, because you know I ended that first volume in 1399. You know, and it's it's like right now it's going to get really exciting because you have this era, the 15th century, the Wars of the Roses, so-called, and. Um, it was completely obvious and natural to write that second volume, um, which I'm really happy with. And obviously, as a historian, you're building on the works of historians who've gone before you. But are you also, in a sense, by writing a new book, sort of expressing dissatisfaction or a sense there is more to say or things things require revisiting or re-examination? Well, history is, is a constant process of revisiting and re-examination. Uh, for lots of reasons, partly because there are always new things to say, new either new uh, new evidence to um, to look at or new ways to look at the same evidence. But there's also the fact that as a historian, you know, you are I, I really passionately and firmly believe that historians are or should be first and foremost storytellers. And storytelling is something that that's redone for every generation. You know, you go back to the sort of the, the great early historians, you know, if you're reading, I don't know, Trevelyan or Smollett or um, Gibbon, you know, these sort of big, portentous, epic uh, historical writers of the sort of 18, late 18th and 19th centuries, you know, that was for that of that time. And it, it feels very sort of pompous probably now, some of it. And then you've got, you know, you have modes of storytelling that fit the market and, and and I just wanted to put, a, in some ways, a fresh kind of gloss, a fresh offer, a fresh version of of the Wars of the Roses. I just wanted to tell this story in my voice. I have taken a particular historical academic approach to looking at this age, but there's also the fact of this is this is how I'm going to tell you this story. This is a book. This is a Dan Jones book, 
and I think people are getting to know what that what that's going to mean. That's kind of big, epic, focused type biographical storytelling. And I sort of feel like with this book, the the Hollow Crown, I've kind of really hit what I want to do in terms of storytelling shapes, storytelling styles, storytelling structure. It's a very comfortable and and enjoyable book to write, and I think that was a sign that um, I've kind of hit a sort of level of style. Talking about your voice, did mm. did you find your voice quickly as a historian, or it sounds as though maybe it takes time just to work out what your own voice absolutely is? It takes a lot of time to work out what your voice is. You know, someone once told me, I can't remember who, someone once said, you've got to write 100,000 words before you start. And I think that was a massive, uh, that was way low. You know, I think you've got to write way, way more words than that. I mean, I think I would estimate roughly that if you take into sort of journalistic output, um, book drafting, uh, I'm probably writing like two or 300,000 words a year, comfortably. And I've been doing that for best part of 10 years. So that's millions of words, and I think I think writing is about that. You know, it is like any other uh, discipline. Was it Malcolm Gladwell, whoever writes about the ten thousand hour rule, forty thousand hour rule? I can't remember how many thousands of hours. You, you know, you just have to write and write and write before you find that voice, um, and it's much more than a hundred thousand words. Annoyingly, <laughs> really annoyingly, because um, otherwise I'd have got there faster. So, what what were you discovering then? Not not just about the Plantagenets and the Tudors, but as a result of approaching this book, what was it that you were sort of feeling your way in as you as you were drafting these words and, and experimenting? Can you say a bit about the process? Well, yeah, I can. So it, it, it's it's quite interesting to compare the way I wrote Plantagenets to the way I wrote Hollow Crown because they are effectively two parts of the same book. But with Plantagenets, it was. It was kind of a process of chronicling, really. I knew I had 250 years to get through. And the writing process for that was just felt like, okay, get there, get there, tell the story, tell the story. And once I'd got there, I felt like it was almost like being a monastic chronicler. It was sort of a lot of things had happened one after the other. And then I had to go back and say, well, this has to be a, a book with some sort of architecture and shape to it. And I sort of imposed a structure after writing that big first draft. And that was a seven-part structure, you know, dividing this early Plantagenet time into seven different ages and showing the the progression from there. But having done that, when I approached Hollow Crown, it was totally the other way around. And I sat with my editor here at Faber, Walter Donoghue, and we, you know, there was a feeling that here was a very obvious uh, way of approaching this material that no one had really done before, which was like quite a long view of the Wars of the Roses that had echoes of Shakespearean structure to it as well that was in some senses theatrical you know to begin with this big set piece in much the same way that Plantagenets had begun with a set piece of the you know the, the prince was drunk the, the sinking of the white ship this would begin with a marriage of Henry V and Catherine de Valois because that would that would do you know from that scene that you could do so much you're setting up triumph of England in the Middle Ages which can then be juxtaposed with its absolute sort of uh, the, the catastrophe that follows. But you're also setting up the seeds of the Tudors because, of course, Catherine de Valois subsequently marries Owen Tudor and then you have this Tudor line. And all that would then be resolved at the end of the book. So 
for a history book, which this, abs you know, this absolutely is a history book, it's, it's footnoted, it's got all the scholarly apparatus, it's based on original research, but it was a really dramatic architectural approach to take to writing. And I knew the shape of the book, chapter by chapter, almost instinctively, as soon as I started writing it. And I think to have that sort of map of the, of the, um, of the writer's territory in your mind as you start to write, uh, obviously... It, it's like building a house, right? It's easier if you have some plans <laughs> rather than just a whole bunch of bricks and you start putting them together. Uh, but that was that was the process for this book. And it didn't need a lot of redrafting. And how much, Dan, would you say that the appeal for you lies in exploring the characters? Because you talked about the importance of storytelling and, and so the architecture, but it comes a lot of it comes down to really strong characters and portraying them. So is that a big draw for you as a, as a writer? I think for, you know. I think for me, storytelling is all about people, and I don't feel any sense of you know embarrassment about that. And I, I know there is a sort of latent feeling uh, that it's you know it's very populist to, to sort of rewriting about people, um, but good because I want to talk to as, as large an audience as possible. And I, I I really firmly believe the best way to get people understanding and engaging with history is to talk about people is to is to use people as the vehicle for your storytelling and you know when I was writing writing Hollow Crown I also had made a decision uh, that the Plantagenets had been quite a male book it was full of blokes right it was full of uh, Edward I raving a sword about and you know, King John being a sort of bastard and all this and I wanted also, I wanted, you know, I wanted to refine that a bit and, and, and make sure that some female characters came through. And I, I realised all of this is, it sounds almost like a sort of novelistic or a, a screenplay approach to writing history, but that's, that's how I'm, I structure the books. And I, I really believe that is the way to get people, um, to get a very wide audience engaging with these books. And, and it's, almost, it's almost a process of stealth, because if you do that, if you take these sort of big storytelling uh, architectural approaches to writing then under it you can slip all the sort of historical research all the um, the analytical thematic stuff that I mean I read widely and, and keep on top of. On one hand you've got these very strong characters which is a great asset to a storyteller mm. but you must also encounter opacity ungraspability sometimes you think well you know what were they what were they thinking or what was the motivation for that and that's sort of beyond reach isn't it sometimes yes it is and therein lies the difference between the historian and the, the novelist um i'm unquestionably a historian you know you you cannot that's the line you can't cross and you do still have a responsibility and a duty to say we do not know this there's a certain amount of historical imagination that's required, but that, that really doesn't, you can't allow that to take you very far because you are then just guessing. And you're guessing without any real basis of knowledge. And um, look, what you, can, what you can know are the sort of, uh, the rules of the game, if you like. You can know how, how we think people thought in general at this time. But of course, what you, you can never do is look inside the mind of any historical figure. And as I say, that is where the line between historical fiction and history must lie. That's the difference between Wolf Hall and an academic biography of Thomas Cromwell. And you don't cross it, and I don't cross it. But you go as close to it as you can, I think. 
If we take imagination to, to mean not making things up, but trying to fit things together in a way that, that shows how they work. For example, when you're, when you're talking about a, a battle scene and you're describing it, that's, that's an engagement of imagination on your part, isn't it? In order to, to make that a, a real vivid event for the reader, rather than simply a, a rehearsal of what chroniclers might have, might have set down. Yes, of course, of course. Look, and that's, that's what we talk about when we say historical imagination, I think. It's, it's to say, well, your job as the historian is to, is to, is to build this, this story out of the kind of the sea of apparently disparate and random evidence and artefacts that have remained. So yeah, absolutely right. If you're writing about the Battle of Towton or the Battle of Bosworth, you know how many people died, you know who was on which side, you know what the accounts are. Um, but you you do have to create as a historian, let's say at Towton, a vision of the battle which would not have been that of any single person engaged in it. Because of course, what we know about medieval battles is basically knowing what the hell was going on. You just sort of <laughs> dealt with about five meters around you. So yeah, as a, as a historian, you do have to piece together all these different viewpoints and pieces of evidence into one grander narrative. But that's, the, that's, the, that's what historians do. You talked about the sort of broader themes operating underneath the, 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 the level of incident and character. And, it, and, and perhaps this is rather obvious, but it seemed to me that, mm-hmm. that kingship and succession were the two sort of Maybe maybe they're always maybe that's always the case uh, in any kind of dynastic struggle. But it seemed to me that you know what what is a king? What makes a king? How does a king exercise his functions? Mm. And how does power pass from one to the other? Were the main things that you were in pursuit of? The big question we always come back to is what is a king? What is kingship? What is the exercise of power? How is it done successfully? What happens when it's done unsuccessfully? Uh, what are the essential differences in, you know, when, if we want to spin out into examples in this book, what, what makes the difference between, say, Edward IV, a king, a very, very competent king uh, with an understanding and a grasp of just about every facet of, of late medieval kingship, and Henry VI, uh, Henry VI a king... Uh, who can fulfil very few of the duties and responsibilities of, of medieval kingship. But that question's played out in so many different ways and, and it's across the Plantagenet era. What is the difference, say, between a tyrannical king, uh, Richard II at the end of his reign, say, and how is that problem different with Henry VI, who is, is not a tyrannical king, in fact he's quite the opposite of a tyrannical king, but is quite clearly useless. Well, the, the great problem you have with Henry VI, uh, and the, or rather the great problem that every, everyone who lived around Henry VI had was there wasn't even the language to, or, or, or the theory to express his uselessness. And therefore, it was very hard to structure an opposition, uh, a legitimate opposition to him. Because in effect, he hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't done anything, full stop. And that was the problem. So, th- so the questions that underpin this this story, yeah, you're absolutely right, are are all about kingship, really, and it all comes back to that. But, but the issues that spin off it, I've tried to to make plain as well. The issues, not just for the, the people very close to the king, but um, where I can to the, the sort of people who turn up, like the, whoever was the person who was on top of skull, the skull we call Townton Twenty Five, which is excavated from the battlefield at Townton with 
this sort of cleft down the middle of the skull where clearly a sort of axe had slammed into the middle of this face. In essence, that, that, that axe, that skull, that sort of monstrous death has all spun out of questions to do with kingship. So I'm trying to explore the question in a lot of different ways. And all of it played out very much under the sign of uncertainty. I mean, you pick as an epigraph to the book, and I paraphrase, but it's a question, you know, who can say where they'll be a year from now? Mm. And of course, that's always true in human affairs. But goodness, was it, was it, you know, it was, it was true to an amazing degree in, in 15th century um, English politics. Yeah, you're right. And I loved that quote. The minute I saw it, I knew that this was the, the quote to, to begin the book. Who, what now that is here, uh, where he shall be another year. Uh, the, the deep uncertainty of life in the Middle Ages. And you're right, the deep uncertainty of life today. Uh, but that's something we don't like to face up to today. In fact, there is this sort of sense today that we're all, we're all, all desperately looking for, for certainty and for long life and for security and for stability. Uh, and that anyone who, who wanders off that, that path is some sort of, sort of maverick or danger seeker or whatever. And yet it's absolutely true. And I, what, what I quite like about the Middle Ages is there's, there's almost this, this, this embracing of, of the vicissitudes and uncertainties of life within the, the, um, the mental world of the Middle Ages. And it's, it's, of course, it's about the wheel of fortune, you know, the idea that, you know, you're at the top of the wheel and just it'll get a spin and you'll be at the bottom. But also, and, and I think, which people don't always think about the wheel of fortune, how very important it is to remember that you could be at the bottom of the wheel and they'll give it a spin and you'll be at the top. You know, this... This sense that anything could happen tomorrow and that the world is blown by these sort of uh, these winds that um, are entirely unpredictable and, um, and changeable and tend to blow when you're least expecting and or wanting it. I sort of love that and I love the, the fact that it was, it, was, it was so embraced and it was, it was just that, one of the rules of life. Another thing I love, Dan, was the way that you brought in as it were, sort of voices from the side, for example, a, a papal legate mm. or an ambassador from a foreign court who often gave wonderful little sort of aperçu of what was going on. And in a way, that kind of allowed you to escape for a second from the sort of intensity of the, the power politics that were going on in England and, and just see it from a slightly different angle. I, and I, thought, I thought that was a, that must have, been, must have been nice sort of orchestrating those little insights, you know, from someone who, who because they're often quite catty. I'm glad you picked up on that because they, they were my sort of in some ways my favorite little viewpoints to uh, to introduce it is almost like you know if this is if this is a story being played out on a stage you just sort of have someone who just sort of pops his head around the curtain and says oh, oh this isn't going very well is it yeah i mean but also people writing letters to people at foreign courts saying oh god it's also bad in england and there's um there's one letter that's written uh, to the milanese ambassador i think it is just after one of the big battles of the 1460s, and says, alas, we were a race deserving of pity even from the French, you know. Um, and I love that, you know, there are these lovely little little vignettes, but you're right, you have, um, you have ambassadors and diplomats who just sort of, some of them even get angry because they're so annoyed they've been sent to cover English affairs and they, just, they can't get their heads around them whatsoever and you have these annoyed letters going back. It's like being a, a foreign correspondent stuck in some very sort of, troublesome part of, I don't know, uh, sub-Saharan Africa today where there are just too many interest groups and things going on. You can't get your head around it and you're writing back to your editor going, look, I don't know what's going on. It's just chaos out here. And that's what you're getting people writing back from England. And, and you're right. Yeah, I loved having those voices in the book because it, it, it does give you moments of light relief from, from, as you say, the intensity and the sort of 
uh, the relentlessness of this, this this story that's going on around it. And there was another another lovely moment which I really enjoyed, which was where just en passant you mentioned Caxton and the printing press, and in a, in among all this story, and you think, goodness, the printing press has just arrived in England, and you get a sense of a of a world changing, a world heading somewhere that's going to take it beyond its its, its present and immediate difficulties. And I thought that was that just sort of opened sort of like opening a window and thinking, goodness, yeah. You know the future is the future is arriving. Well, I like writing about the fifteenth century because it is this bridging time between the sort of actual sort of quite inaccessibility of of of, the, of earlier centuries in the Middle Ages and the the more familiar that we reach in the sixteenth century. You know, I don't. I think one of the reasons people have been able or, or, or willing to engage with the sixteenth century and the Tudors in England is partly because, you know, the portraiture suddenly becomes lifelike. The English suddenly becomes, or apparently suddenly becomes, uh, intelligible and, and, and modern, quote-unquote. English becomes the, the, a regular language of, of correspondence, and, and, um, and you can hear the voices. Um, and I, so I enjoyed sort of tracing that journey through this book, because, well, actually, even at the beginning... You're at this place where you, you start to hear the voices of these people in English, let's say, quite clearly. So we have letters from Henry V dictated back from France, which are in English. And you, it, it's so different because you can hear his voice. You can, you can hear that sort of strident kind of sort of leader's voice. Uh, and, and as the period develops, it gets more and more sort of open and familiar. And you're not having to translate out of French and Latin uh, and, and losing something in that, that translation. But you're right. Yeah, this is this is a great century um, of change, and although this is uh, primarily a sort of political and and, uh, and dynastic story, yes, you, it, it's a train driving through a changing countryside. If you want to think about it that way, we started with a 13, 14 year old you. Mm. Would he would he be surprised that you're still at the Tudor court all these years after? Yeah, I think totally amazed. Actually, when I was growing up, I thought I was, might be a gardener. So it would be nice to work outside. My dad quite liked being and doing gardens. So I thought I'd do that. And that was my equivalent of being a fireman, you know. Uh, then I had this sort of vague notion I was going to kind of write something or other, but um, didn't really know what. And then, and here I am writing history books. Actually, yeah, you know, right, right where I was before. And I, I you know, I, I talked to some teachers the other day, and they were saying, "Oh, yeah, we use your book in class, Plantagenet." This one. I thought, well, that's great. Kids are learning about the Plantagenets. I wish I'd had that opportunity when I was a kid. And then I had this sort of moment of sort of almost existential kind of angst that I was now an authority that children were reading about. And that whereas I'd used kind of John Guy and David Stark and Dermot McCulloch and Eamon Duffy, you know, all, and all these great sort of eminent Tudor historians, the idea that one is now... Uh, the authority that then the teacher might say, okay, pull out your copy of Jones, we're turning to Edward III. Well, I'm so pleased they're turning to Edward III, and I'm actually, there's, there's a sort of gnawing bit of terror in my stomach that, um, that I'm now responsible for, for maybe someone else sitting here in 15 years' time doing an interview like this. I was talking to Dan Jones about the Hollow Crown, the Wars of the Roses, and the Rise of the Tudors, which is out now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll also find a short video of Dan talking about writing his book. 
You can make sure you never miss this podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. That's all for this podcast, and so until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.